Thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. Good morning. My name is Ed Nall, and it is my privilege to be one of the pastors here at Leesburg Community Church, and it is my joy to be able to preach to you uh, this morning from Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. So turn in your Bibles there, and while you do, I'll give you a brief introduction. Sometimes on a Saturday afternoon, while I'm having lunch, I will watch an episode of The Perry Mason Show. If you're not familiar, he's the 1950s and 60s TV attorney who never loses a court case and has one of the greatest theme songs in television history. Every episode is called The Case of the, and then you fill in the blank. I'll give you four examples. The Case of the Petulant Partner. The Case of the Dangerous Dowager. The Case of the Corresponding Corpse. And my favorite, The Case of the Treacherous Toupee. I've seen some bad toupees. I've never seen one that was treacherous. Today's sermon is titled, The Case of the Three Impossible Things. During this sermon, we will see three impossible things, at least they're impossible for us. Three incurable people, at least they're incurable for us. And then three people who have no hope until they meet the one who brings hope to the hopeless. So here are some questions that I hope to answer this morning as we look at the power, authority, and compassion of Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 5. Do you ever feel as though God is far away? That He isn't thinking of you at all? Or if He is, that He's not acting for your good? Do you ever think, as many do, that God would like to help, but He won't? Or He doesn't have enough power to help you? Our sermon, The Case of the Three Impossible Things, should go a long way toward answering those questions, and it will offer you the encouragement of Jesus Christ Himself acting on behalf of those who trust in Him. We will see Jesus exercise His power and authority over the natural world, over demons, over disease, and even over death. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this message is for your encouragement. But if you have not yet believed in Jesus, this message will answer some of your questions, including the big one, who is Jesus Christ? And why does he have relevance for my daily life? Why does he matter in busy Northern Virginia life? My hope is that this will not be a message that is merely interesting, but has no relevance for your life. The knowledge of King Jesus who commands the wind and the waves and they obey who heals diseases, casts out demons, and raises people from the dead with a word of command because He loves them, is crucial knowledge for our daily lives. That's how we get through. So, we're going to look at three accounts. The account of the demon-possessed man, the story of Jairus and his daughter, and the account of the woman with an issue of blood. So I'm going to start by reading Mark 5, 1 through 13. This is the first part of our story. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus 
had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. That's our story so far. It sounds strange to modern ears, doesn't it? So let's pray before we dive into the passage. Heavenly Father, uh, help us to hear from you this morning. Help us to hear something that would apply to our daily lives. Help us to hear the truth. Lord, help me to preach effectively and help all of us to hear from you and then to put into practice what we have heard. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus has demonstrated his authority over the natural world at the end of Mark chapter 4. There's a powerful storm. Uh, the sea is crashing about them. Water is coming into the boat. Jesus says to the wind and the waves, peace, be still. And the sea and the wind are immediately calm. It is not the case that he says, peace, be still, and then eventually the storm subsides as we might naturally expect it to do. No, it happens immediately. And then the disciples are even more afraid. Because it's a frightening thing to be in the presence of the demonstrated power of God. And they ask, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? And they're going to get their answer from an unlikely source, right here in the beginning of chapter 5. Now, Jesus and his disciples go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the largely Gentile side, and are immediately confronted with a man who is naked, screaming, cutting himself, probably in an effort to try to end his miserable life. He lived among the tombs. That is, he lived among the dead and the dying in these caves in the side of the mountain. Therefore, by Jewish custom, he was ceremonially unclean and furthermore was possessed by demons, as we will see in a minute. It is hard to imagine a more difficult, loveless, tortured life than this man lived. No one could help him. When he was bound, he broke the shackles and chains. He roamed about all the time, that is night and day, tormented. His life was miserable, and he made life miserable for all those in the vicinity. And as far as we can tell, at this point in his life, no one loved him or cared for him. They were afraid of him. 
They just try to control him, but they were unable to do so. And so Jesus comes to the first of our three impossible things. And this one is a person that no one has been able to help. This is a man with no hope. This man falls at Jesus' feet and answers the disciples' question in chapter 4. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? And this wild man calls him Jesus, son of the Most High God. The demons who possess this man know who Jesus is, and they know that he has authority over them. Now the demons using Jesus' name, they're not worshiping. It was an accepted practice during spiritual warfare in those days to recite the precise name of your adversary in an effort to gain control over him. So they're not worshiping Christ. But they recognize Jesus' authority. In the parallel account in Matthew chapter 8, the demons say, have you come here to torment us before the time? What do they mean by before the time? The demons know that there is an appointed time, and at that time they will be finally and fully judged and punished. They know that's coming. Jesus speaks to the man and says, what is your name? The demons, taking control of the man's voice, answer, my name is Legion, indicating that there are many demons inside this man. A Roman legion is about 6,000 soldiers. We're not sure how many demons there are, but there are a lot of them inhabiting this man. Now, before we go any further, I want to give you just a few things that we can know about demons from this passage. Demons are real, and they're dangerous. They can control and speak through people. They are powerful spiritual beings. Their ultimate goal is the misery and death of the person that they inhabit. But here's the good news. Demons recognize and are subject to Christ's superior power and authority over them. We have an advocate. Now, because we don't typically know probably as much about the unseen or the spiritual world as we should, I want to read you a quote that I hope will guide us as we learn about these demons in Mark 5. C.S. Lewis wrote this great little book called The Screwtape Letters. There's a guy named Max McLean who travels and does presentations of this around the country. It's a story of an old demon named Screwtape who has an apprentice, and he's giving advice to Wormwood, his apprentice, as to how he can successfully deceive people. But here is Lewis' advice for us. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So that's our caution from Lewis. So the demons, taking over the man's voice, beg Jesus to allow them to stay in the country. Who has the authority here? Jesus does. They are begging him. And the demons see these 2,000 pigs nearby. And by the way, that, would, that number of pigs would fill this sanctuary roughly four times. That's a large herd of pigs. And they say, can we go into the pigs? The demons enter the pigs because Jesus allows them to. They run into the sea and they are drowned. 
Now, people wonder, why would Jesus do such a thing? The text doesn't say he did it for this reason. But I think we can extrapolate a couple. John MacArthur sees this reason. By granting permission for the demons to come out and enter into the 2,000 pigs, Jesus was demonstrating the magnitude of their destructive and deadly power. He also highlighted the glorious superiority of his own power. And then this much is surely true. The image of God in one man was more important to Christ than these 2,000 swine who do not carry the image of God. Satan and his demons lie and seek to deface and destroy the image of God in men and women. But God has come to restore, through Jesus Christ, the image of God in man to all those who will place their trust in Jesus. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might go with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. No one could help this man anymore. No one could control him, even with chains and shackles. But Jesus spoke a word, and the demons departed. And the first of our three impossible things was accomplished. Jesus had mercy and compassion for this man who had unimaginable spiritual, physical, and emotional difficulties. So what happened here? What is the result of Jesus' compassion and power in this seemingly incurable man? Well, he was naked, but now he was clothed. He was tormented, but now he was at peace. He was cutting himself and utterly without purpose. Now he was commissioned by the Son of God to go and proclaim in his hometown what God had done for him. This is a radical transformation, isn't it? He was transformed from a violent sinner into a forgiven ambassador. Very much like the Apostle Paul, who was transformed from, these are Paul's own words, a violent opponent of Christ. And Christ turned him into his leading ambassador. And it's the same kind of transformation that God works in us. When we trust in him and our status changes from being enemies of God to being sons and daughters of God, children of God. I'm sure you can see the application here. Go home to your friends, your families, your co-workers, your neighbors, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And when you go, know that Jesus Christ, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, goes with you, even to the ends of the earth. We have nothing to fear. 
Let's continue to the second and third impossible things. These two things are in a sandwich structure. That is, one miracle is inside the other. One miracle starts and it's interrupted by another miracle. We'll pick up the narrative in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. So Jesus is now back on the other side of the Galilee, back in Jewish territory, probably in Capernaum. And here he meets Jairus, who is a ruler in the synagogue. And Jairus is going to be seen in contrast with this woman who has the issue of blood as one miracle interrupts another. These two people, whose lives are going to intersect in verses 21 to 43, could not be much more different. One's a man, one's a woman. One was wealthy, one was very poor. One was honored in the community, one was shamed. One was a religious leader. The other was excommunicated. One had a 12-year-old daughter who was near to death. The other had been suffering for 12 years with a withering disease. They are very different, but they have one thing in common. Only God can do for them what needs to be done. The impossible things that they need to be done. And they have another thing in common. They both come and kneel before Jesus. They kneel before the king because that's a posture of worship. But now Jesus does something that all of us should be willing to do, but too often we are not. He allows himself to be interrupted. He makes himself accessible. And here's how God works. I read my sermons before I deliver them to my wife. She is my best critic. Uh, she, she can just see things that I can't see. I get in the middle of it. I've been working hard on it. I can't see things, but she can so I'm reading the sermon to Heidi, and my sister starts blowing up my phone with text messages uh, while I'm reading this part about being accessible and, <laughs> and interruptible. And I get upset with my sister. I don't tell her that, but I'm upset because she's interrupting me, and I'm preaching on being interrupted. God is gracious. He allows himself to be interrupted so that he can do the work of the ministry. He allows himself to be interrupted so that the power of God will be more fully known, more fully demonstrated than if he had just gone on to heal Jairus' daughter when she was sick. So follow along in verse 24. This great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. This woman had tried everything to obtain a cure, spent all her money, and instead of being better, she was worse. Try to imagine what this was like for her. How hopeless she had been. 
how disillusioned she was with doctors and the spells and the religious leaders who would not or could not help her. And then she touches a fringe of Jesus' cloak and is immediately healed. Mark loves the word immediately. It occurs 41 times in his gospel. But here's the thing about Jesus' healing. He didn't put this woman into a drug therapy program or recommend that she have surgery or make her go to a rehab facility. She was healed immediately by the power of God because she had faith. Look with me at verse 30. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, almost always clueless, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, I love this verse, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Take note of this because it's really important in Jewish culture. This woman should not have touched Jesus, not according to the Jewish customs of the day. She was unclean, and her touching someone made them unclean as well for about seven days. But not so with Jesus. With Jesus, almost everything is backwards and upside down. If you want to be rich, give some money away. You want to be exalted? Humble yourself. You want to be powerful? Become a servant of all. Want to have a great life? Give your life away. Want to be first? Be last. Everything's upside down and backwards. Jesus allowed power to go out from himself to heal her because he had compassion for her. And his power is greater than any storm, any disease, any demon, even death. And his power today is the same as it ever was. All of us, just like this woman, are sinners. But if we would reach out to Jesus, that is, if we would touch him by faith, his righteousness will be credited to our account, and we will be healed from our sin and enter into a right relationship with God. So this woman has this disease, and no one can heal her. No one in the community could help her or would help her. She heard about Jesus, she had faith in him, and even though she was an outcast, the Son of God healed her and called her his daughter. It's the only time in recorded scripture that Jesus called someone his daughter. So Jesus reverses the order of things, and instead of her uncleanness attaching to him, his power and righteousness attach to her. And not only is she healed of her disease, she is forgiven of her sins. How do we know this? Because the Greek word for her being made well or healed is sozo, which is a term usually used in the New Testament for being saved from sin. She came for a physical healing, and Jesus gave her that. But he also gave her forgiveness for her sins and everlasting life. Her faith, when she touched Christ's cloak, was probably not much more than superstition. But the object of her faith was the great physician who heals all our diseases, 
especially the most serious disease, which is unbelief. It was not the strength of her faith that healed her. It was her faith's object. And Jesus is concerned with far more than her disease. This physical daughter of Abraham was now a daughter of God. Please understand this. It isn't how strong your faith is that carries the day. It's where you put your faith. It's the object of your faith. It's the one in whom you put your faith that really matters. And I want to bring this point home by reading one of my favorite quotations from one of my spiritual heroes, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. This is from his little book, Morning and Evening Devotions, written in 1854. Remember, sinner, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though faith is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and his merits. Therefore, do not look to your hope, but to Christ, who is the source of your hope. Do not look to your faith, but to Christ, who is the author and the finisher of your faith. And if you do that, 10,000 devils cannot throw you down. It is not prayer. It is not faith. It is not our doings, it is not our feelings upon which we must rest, but upon Christ and on Christ alone. Let me beseech you, look only to Christ, never expect deliverance from self, from ministers, nor from any means of any kind apart from Christ. Keep your eyes simply on Him. Let His death, His merits, His glories, His intercession be always fresh upon your mind. When you wake in the morning, look for him. When you lie down at night, look for him. So, now we've seen two impossible things that were possible with God. Two incurable people that Jesus heals and forgives. But we have to remember Jairus. Remember Jairus? We're right in the middle of his story. Jairus, the community leader, is waiting and he's in fear that his daughter will die. We know it's his only daughter because of the parallel account in Luke's gospel. Jesus delays his journey to heal Jairus' daughter who is dying in order to heal someone who's merely sick. It looks like medical malpractice. It looks like a bad job of triage. Wouldn't you want to heal the person who's dying more than the person who's sick? Wouldn't you want to heal the person whose, whose father is well-known in the community and respected rather than this woman? Surely you would prioritize the important person, Jairus, over this woman who had been marginalized, but not if you were Jesus. Jesus stops his journey and heals her. Jairus is almost undoubtedly wondering why he stops to even speak to this woman. Doesn't he know who Jairus is? a ruler in the synagogue, and therefore more important than this woman? So why does Jesus stop? I think there are three reasons at least. First, he stops for the woman. He took the opportunity to grow this woman's faith from faith for a physical healing to physical healing and forgiveness of sins and its result, which is everlasting life. He grew her faith. He loved her. Secondly, he delays for Jairus because what Jairus is going to see is so much greater than what he was hoping for. He was hoping his daughter would be healed of her sickness, but he's going to witness a resurrection from the dead 
of his only daughter. His faith will grow. And thirdly, Jesus delays his journey for us. He knew that we would read this account. We would marvel at these three incurable people that only Jesus could cure. Jesus knew that this would strengthen our faith in him. And then comes this word in verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. Jairus' whole world has just gone from hope to despair in an instant. His only daughter is dead. The delay had seemingly cost him his daughter's life. But Jesus, caring for him, says, do not fear, only believe. Jesus is going to expand Jairus' faith. He's moving him away from what is probably superstition, away from, and I don't have any other options, so I'll try this Jesus thing, away from faith for a healing to witnessing a resurrection from the dead. He is expanding Jairus' faith, not in spite of the delay, but because of the delay. And here's the application for our lives from Jairus' story. Tim Keller puts it this way in his marvelous book, King's Cross. Here's a quote. Jesus, in effect, is looking over Jairus' head to all of us and saying, remember how when I calmed the storm, I showed you that my grace is compatible with going through storms, though you may not think so? Well, now I'm telling you that my grace and love are compatible with what seem to you to be unconscionable delays. It's not I will not be hurried even though I love you. It's I will not be hurried because I love you. I know what I'm doing. And if you try to impose your understanding of schedule and timing on me, you will struggle to feel loved by me. So Jesus continues in verse 37. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her in her language, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him to the house where there's this great commotion. Most likely there were flutes playing dissonant music and professional mourners wailing loudly. They were common in the homes of the wealthy. Jesus just asked them to leave. And he says, why all the commotion? She's merely sleeping. 
Sleeping is the same word he used in regard to Lazarus before raising him from the dead. Doesn't Jesus know that she's dead? Of course he does. Jesus is using sleep as a metaphor for death. Why? To remind us that death is not permanent and that a future resurrection awaits those who place their trust in him. The mourner's grief, some of which was probably artificial, immediately becomes scorn. And they laugh at the one person in the universe that can do for Jairus' family what is needed. But Jesus will now take, this is what Jesus does, he takes chaos and he brings it into order. Just as he did in creation and just as he does in our lives. Jesus puts the mourners out of the home, takes his companions and the parents into this girl's room, takes her hand and says, little girl, some translations, little lamb, I say to you, arise. Now it's time for audience participation. What is the next word in this account going to be? Thank you. Thank you, Daryl. <laughs> Immediately, she got up and began walking. And he strictly charged them, no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Now, why not release her and her family to tell others as he did with the demon-possessed man? Jesus did not want people to think of him merely as a faith healer. And he knew that the miracles by themselves would not convince people of his deity or communicate to them why he had come. MacArthur puts it this way in his commentary on Mark. Jesus knew that a miracle like raising Jairus' daughter from the dead could only be fully appreciated in light of the cross and the empty tomb. Ultimately, it was his own victory over sin and death that enabled him not only to give life to a dead girl, but to offer eternal life to all those who believe in him. So here's what we have seen. Three impossible things, three incurable people, and three people whose situation is hopeless until they meet the one for whom nothing is impossible, nothing, nothing and no one is incurable, and no person is hopeless. No person is hopeless. Howard Hendricks was a great professor at Dallas Seminary. I had a friend who attended Dallas. I asked him what he majored in. He said, I majored in Howard Hendricks. He said, any class he taught, I took it. Hendricks told his students, uh, if you can't tell me what your sermon is about in one sentence, you're probably not ready to preach it. I agree with that. So here's my sentence. Jesus Christ has authority and power over the natural world, over demons, over disease, and death, and he cares for you. Amen? Here's another sentence from 1 Peter 5 that we'll do. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. If you are already a believer, this knowledge should bring you great comfort and hope. Even if your faith is weak, if your faith is in Christ, you have great hope because of his power and his compassion enacted for sinners like us. And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, 
before. Let this be the day. The God of the universe has the power not only to heal, but to forgive sin and to give you new and everlasting life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word, which is perfect, which does not return void. We pray that you would use it in all of our lives this morning, that you would enable us by your grace to trust in you and to put what we have heard into action. Thank you for all of your kindness to us, Lord. It is remarkable how you love sinners like us and forgive sinners like us. Help us, Lord, to carry that message to everyone we meet. We pray together in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.